This week on the show, we're migrating from an old Linux server to a new FreeBSD machine and show you how that is done. The internet was designed with a narrow waist and what kind of implications that has. The worst new guys in history and what kind of article that is about. FreeBSD jails versus Docker, a comparison. Brian Callahan got Oracle Developer Studio 12.6 working on Elomos and he describes in detail how that is done. Manipulating uh, many other BSDs in good or bad ways is another thing that the Polar Principle uh, is talking about when we are doing our feedback and questions section. So definitely stick around. We'll have more in this episode as well. BSD Now, episode 534, Narrow Wasted Internet. That's W-A-I-S-T-E-D, not W-A-S-T-E-D. Recorded on the 8th of November, 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow, find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And, and I'm Tom Jones. Welcome. So with a narrow wasted internet that's coming a little bit later in this episode, we should start with the headlines as always. This time, migrating from an old Linux server to a new FreeBSD machine. You, just like my nephew, I was very thrown by you spelling a word out loud. I think I just wasn't expecting it. I can I can spell. It's not spelling B here. I but, can spell though. Yeah. I, 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 just, just so everyone knows, I can't spell. No, it well, helps. No, uh, don't worry about it. Just don't read any first drafts from me and you'll be fine. Um, so first up, we have an article for, by Stefan Martinelli, uh, migrating from an old Linux server to a new FreeBSD machine. And they have custom artwork and a little logo. And when you mouse over it, it, it comes colorful. Um, nice. Which is great because it's a dilapidated old Linux server and then a cool modern new FreeBSD server. But if it was made by an AI, it's, it's not nice. And I'm just annoyed about it. Yeah. Um, the logo does impinge on the name of the author, though, just in case you're listening, and at least in Firefox, um, on whatever operating system this is. Preamble. I believe it's time to bid farewell to this venerable Linux server. Um, I'm going to read the TLDR and then I'm going to read the whole article. It's out of spite. If that's just not spoiling too much. Yeah, spoilers. Major spoilers. Skip a minute ahead if you want to avoid the spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> tldr the the article chronicles the journey of transitioning from an outdated linux server running for 1690 days without updates to a modern Whee! free bsd machine this migration involved using tools like mfs bsd bastille bsd borg backup and behive despite initial hesitations due to the linux server's impeccable performance yeah okay um, the transition was smooth resulting in improved manageability and efficiency the piece emphasizes the importance of regular system updates and anticipates revisiting the topic in the future with new uptime achievements and updates. This server loyally served for years as a secondary backup server, while also providing a few minor services to users. As it happens, it remained in operation, neglected and without updates for years. Stable operating systems have the flaw of being forgotten, giving the false impression they don't need maintenance or updates. This machine to continue to serve continued its service without oversight for years. 
When approached for a service request, not due to a malfunction, I advise the client to upgrade the whole system. A mere update would not suffice. I suggested starting afresh on new hardware with FreeBSD as the primary OS. The client was understandably hesitant given the uptime stats. Um, it's almost 9am. It's been up for 1,690 days. Um, four users, load average 9.57, 10.15, 8.76. Not a single error, not a single hiccup. From this perspective, a similar setup to what was installed many years ago and still worked flawlessly was preferred. Nevertheless, he trusted my expertise and let me proceed. This server had a plethora of duties, among which one of the pivotal tasks was running Proxmox backup server via Docker. Proxmox backup server requires Debian, but this server was running on Ubuntu 16.04, previously upgraded from 14.04, ancient. Hence, Proxmox backup server was still a version 1.x. Another critical function was storing backups made through Borg backup on its file system. The home directory used a mirrored ButterFS file system, and each backed-up server had its own user on the system. Clients could back up using a push method only via VPN and only during specific windows when the server permitted by adding specific firewall rules via Jenkins. Jenkins also managed connection protocols, snapshots, backups, etc. Among the lesser tasks, the server ran a few Docker containers with handbrake on various presets. The client processed video conversions by uploading the original files via files via SFTP, SFTP, and after some hour, hours, the fetched the converted files from the destination directory. This will not be re replicated on the new FreeBSD server since they now handle this operation locally on their high-performance MacBook Pro with Apple Silicon. However, a future restoration isn't off the table. The first thing I did was install FreeBSD on the new hardware, given its physical server on Hetzner, an auction pick due to disk space needs over power, and FreeBSD wasn't an option, I used MFSBSD. After booting the physical server in Linux Rescue, I copied MFSBSD onto the disks using DD and restarted. On boot, I SSH'd into MFSBSD and executed the, ex in executed the installation using BSD install, a robust and efficient method. I set up a RAID Z1 with all four 6TB disks, resulting in a final storage space of 21.8TB, ample for now without the video files. To ensure continuity, I kept a similar setup to the old one. Clients would essentially continue with their usual backup procedure without necessitating drastic changes to the backup script. To avoid storing these backups directly in the physical machine's home, and to leave the door open for future services, I installed Bastille BSD and began setting up several jails. I replaced old Linux machines behavior with VNAT FreeBSD jail. In past scenarios, I've created FreeBSD jails thanks to Bastille and transferred the old server into a jail using rsync, making minor configuration tweaks. While this usually works, it doesn't address the underlying issue of an obsolete setup. Given the opportunity, I opted for a more modern tool set. Thus, I copied every home directory along with their historic backups in its entirety, installed Borg backup and re-established the VPN, with a VNet jail, I can craft networking devices and fine-tune configurations. After recreating user accounts, inputting the variant SSH authorized keys and checking all clients, I set up a snapshot plan on the host. This ensures that if a client is compromised with potential hardware remote breach for backup and deletion, as if a snapshot of the entire jail remains available. As mentioned, one of the core tools on the server was a Proxmox backup server. It's not natively installable on FreeBSD, necessitating a VM. Enter fantastic Beehive. Uh, supported by VM Beehive. However, one issue arose. Backups would consume vast amounts of space. 
and I wanted to avoid housing an enormous disk image or Zvol with both VMs and backups. So I opted for a slightly less performant but more flexible solution. Installing Debian 12 and Proxmox backup server on the VM while placing backups on a separate ZFS dataset on the physical machine exported via NFS mounted on the virtual machine. Given that the physical server has an internal bridge, VM public with the IP uh, 192.168.124.1 and the VM is at 192.168.124.2, I created a dataset named root slash PBS and added the following lines to exports and then enabled NFS. After Proxmox backup service installation, simply set up the data stores in slash PBS and the directory store in the physical machine and ZFS dataset. For firewall configurations, I exposed port 8007, redirecting it towards the VM, and everything started functioning smoothly. I then set a Proxmox backup server replica from the old to a new server. After completion, I changed the Proxmox backup server IP on all Proxmox hosts to put into a new server. Smooth sailing. The old Ubuntu server also managed other minor services which had become obsolete and weren't replicated. The transition was seamless. The client is pleased and I'm content since each service is now neatly segregated into its jail or VM. The machine's load is minimal, which might pave way for other tasks via VPN. Right now everything rests on ZFS. And the icing on the cake, I made the client promise not to reach for another 1,690 days of uptime, but to keep timely updates required. I'm not entirely convinced the promise will hold, meaning in a few years, I might be able to discussing with new server, highlighting another impressive uptime and another upgrade journey. Okay, cool. then we have something to cover then. Thanks, Again. Stefano. Um, maybe you should get these people to rotate their, their SSH keys, because they are uh, oh, yeah. a decade old. Good idea, yeah. They're probably a decade Newer old. ciphers. Like, but it's possible that, that it can be done. If, if you have the storage for the backup software on an NFS mount, then you lose the ability for the backup software to use any native snapshotting, which I don't know mm. if Proxmox does, but it makes me wonder if NFS could support snapshotting. Or you copy the snapshots to NFS, which is kind of... Well, no, as in like... So if you were on the file system, uh, a piece yeah. of software would be able to detect the file system it was running on, and if it was UFS or ZFS trigger snapshots but because it's nfs it won't support snapshots and the file system type will come through as nfs but the underlying yep. file system is zfs which does support snapshots so uh, you lose this very helpful feature probably in the old some days when nfs was really integrated tightly into zfs and now it's the nfs coming from the operating I, system I, that's I, Linux. I don't know because there's lots of the proliferation of tools using snapshots hasn't been that fast. I mean, we're slowly mm. getting there as there's more file systems for it. Maybe this is a future work. That's cool. That's, that's, I'm going to forget this idea. Uh, if anyone wants to pursue Tom it, is thinking it. about more things to no, do. No, I'm going to forget it. I've got a lot of stuff to do. I have, <laughs> I have the word crossword written down here, and I can't remember why. I'd like to figure out why. Okay. Yeah, like, there's a mystery just on my desk, like crossword. Did you write it, or is it someone else's handwriting? It's in my handwriting, but it's two words. It's like crossword, so it might be a very angry word, but I think it's a puzzle. Oh, okay. Okay. While Tom is thinking about that, I will cover the next item, which is the namesake for this episode. The internet was designed with a narrow waist. So that's on oilshell.org. And 
the article there starts with, in December, uh, the author here reviewed eight 2021 posts on hashtag software architecture. This post goes deeper in that direction, showing diagrams of the narrow ways idea. Yes, diagrams are in this blog post, uh, but it's difficult to, of course, describe them here. So you, we refer you to our show notes where you can find the original article and see the pictures there. So when you hear the term, you should picture an hourglass with M things on one side and N on the other, and an important concept in the middle. So recap, a narrow waist is a concept, interface, or protocol that has solved an interoperability problem. It avoids O of M times N code explosions, letting us write O, M plus N amounts of code instead. This is a big deal in practice. Most code is glue, but it doesn't have to be this way. And byte streams and text are essential narrow wastes in software, particularly in distributed systems. All right. So IP is the first one, the narrow waste of internet ar architecture. Let's start with two diagrams uh, they found uh, about the architecture on the internet itself. The IP in TCP IP stands for the Internet Protocol. Yeah, thanks, Sherlock. Um, easy enough. It was developed by Vint Cerf and Bob Kahn, who described it in 1974. It allows interoperability between applications on the top and physical transports on the bottom. And here's the first hourglass. For example, the, the author here started using the web in the 90s with a PC connected to a modem connected to a phone line. Those were the days. Guitar tabulature was a type of text that traveled well over slow networks. Ah, okay. <laughs> In the next few decades, I used the internet over Ethernet at college, over wires meant for cable television, over DSL from the phone company, with wireless routers, and with cell phones. At no point did a web page author have to do anything to make this work. This is because web browsers and servers both use the internet abstraction. I'm mixing up some layers, but my ignorance is part of the point. They write, it's just working. Okay, then they have a little... Uh, illustration of the internet hourglass. So in networking, the idea of a narrow waste is used and taught explicitly, but we don't pay enough attention to this idea in software, particularly in the modern cloud. In the next few uh, posts, they'll review Unix policies, like local complaints, which are ignorant of the large-scale architecture. So the pre-internet M times N confusion, the first email application stated it not use the internet. They were directly coupled to a local physical network. You could send messages to your co-worker, but not to your family across the ocean. Moreover, you had to write or port the app if you wanted to use different hardware, like a wireless network instead of wired. You also had to rewrite or port your file transfer application. So instead of just one email application, you had N email apps that worked on N networks. And this was true for each of M applications giving O time, M times N amounts of code. These days, each application uses the internet and each local network supports the internet, which is an O M plus N amount of code. So this is similar to rewriting assembly language programs. When you got a new computer, which was the status quo before standard instruction set architectures were invented. It's hard to imagine how or now, but in the 60s, you would throw out your software after buying a new computer from the same vendor. Back then, only large organizations owned computers. That's true. Uh, Fred Brooks's Turing Award cites a seminal work in this area, like IBM's System 360 line of mainframes. Uh, they also have an update from uh, the 28th of February, I think. Uh, reader Cheche Dawaf reminded him that the Dream Machine by Waldrop covers the development of the internet in great detail. They read it in 2018 and mentioned it in this blog as well. There's a link to it. These abstractions can be designed. 
My point is that we take narrow ways for granted, but like the air, but real people put a lot of effort into designing and inventing them. I think we're still writing distributed systems the wrong way with OM times N amounts of labor. This blog post from August goes deeper into that. They link to a Unix and microservices platforms uh, post. A major point is that cross-cutting concerns like authentication, authorization, metrics, and monitoring, alerting, and deployment are done for each service and for each programming language, leading to code explosions and language wars. It cites the excellent Unix versus Google video, which makes an analogy to Multics. This discussion is similar to not identical to Kubernetes in our generation's Multics. With hindsight, this way of building systems now will seem as silly as throwing out uh, your software when you buy a new computer. We should explicitly think about new and narrow ways and fix old ones like the shell. The shell, you say? Uh, the shell and distributed systems is the next part. I made two diagrams to show where this line of thought is going. Upcoming posts will substantiate and elaborate on them. Uh, bytes and flat files. This diagram shows the using or that using the common abstraction of byte streams allow essential generic or polymorphic operations avoiding OM times N amounts of code. The slogans here are most code is glue, especially in distributed systems. And by glue they mean copying and simply uh, or doing simple data transformations like parsing and serialization. Shell is the language of byte streams and coarse grained composition. It's also the language of heterogeneity and diversity. They talk a bit more about uh, Unix architecture and narrow wastes. And that's uh, yeah a little bit further down uh, discussing various uh, approaches. And they have a bunch of addendums over the couple months that followed after the publication of this blog post. So there's a bit more if you want to read further down. Yeah, you'd never heard of oil shell before. It's a shell. Mm. It's slippery. Oh, is yeah, it? Yeah, it's a shell. That's OSH. in ports? I could probably, package probably. install oil shell? You could try. Okay. How else do we do anything? Yeah, I'm just wondering. Well, okay, well, Benedict is installing a new shell <laughs> to confuse himself later. We'll head into... Oh, no, wait, there's another article. There's three. Okay, cancel that. Um, last up in the headlines, we have the worst new guys in history. And this person That's not us, right? has a very ornate T for the start of this sentence. It's a, it's a, it's a great one. It's a high quality. Oh, yeah. Like much, an old Much uh, better book. than any of the T's on any blog post I've ever written. Uh, my name's Tom. Stylish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this one also has swearing. Uh, like last week, JT will decide whether or not to censor the swearing. I'm just going to read the swearing because... You, I, you probably get the, the good parts. My swearing is also good, but yeah, I enjoy, go I enjoy ahead. It. Maybe Bennett doesn't realize that swear away. The children. Uh, I don't know if you are. <laughs> yeah, no one has ever, no one's ever told me if they inflict PGA this on their kids. Podcast. Dave, Dave, like DCH might actually inflict this on his kids. He was, he picked me up. I picked me and my wife up from the train. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I promise I can focus most days. Yeah, he picked me and my wife up um, from a train station in Vienna. Other than we had pancakes oh, nice. at his house, um, but he'd been listening Ooh. to BSD now just before he picked us up. Oh, and he did got he? back in the car oh, and started playing. Great. He's like, "I don't know how to get. I don't know how to stop his playing." Sad. <laughs> Where's my voice coming from? Well, I, all of a sudden, yeah, yeah I find it disconcerting. Uh, thanks, Dave. I, I don't know if you hear this. Um, Dave's great. Yeah, I know. I, yeah, it's it's very very strange when people tell you things. I believe listen to this show. There's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of my voice out there. Um, <laughs> this is on uh, blog.vito.nyc. Um, the person's name is Vito Gambarini, Deep Sea Noodle. 
the new worst guys in history. This, the best tier I've seen so far in the history of this podcast. This is just some dumb shit to be musing on, but I think it might be healthy to type up some of these errata streams of consciousness. My normal process is to force these thoughts on some FNG. Um, FNG stands for fucking new guy, and then it links to a Wikipedia article where it describes the the, the um, syndrome of new guy where you don't like when new people um, so i might force some of these thoughts on the fng on my boat which I, I could do with elaboration on my boat but whatever um maybe they row <laughs> who has no choice but to sit there and listen to my infinite wisdom lest he upset me and i curse him into endless dinkness i didn't look up what this means today i'm thinking about programming and why people who want to learn programming are among the worst learners in history if you're a programmer yourself, this post will come across as obvious or pretentious, depending on how you feel about the topic. Background. Learning programming is hard. That's not just an opinion. There's a lot of well-established literature around the fact that the intro to computer science students seem to fail at staggering rates. Now we have four histograms, which I couldn't really make sense of. Historically, this phenomenon has been called the camel has two humps, after a line from an unpublished, now unpopular paper from 2006. The data doesn't seem to bear out that intro courses display a larger bimodal distribution than introductory courses of other fields. However, students drop out of intro more than other fields. And now we have a histogram I did understand. It's a histogram of grades between psychology and intro to computer science. The grade W um, represents people dropping out from the course. And um, it's four times as big in computer science, but then it also says correlation does not imply causation. Thus ends a section of this blog post with anything resembling science or facts. Now enter wild conjecture and speculation. I propose that this, as a creative pursuit, programming is harder than most other fields that have come before in human history. I further propose that the unusual approaches of self-teaching programming are antithetical to productive knowledge, and if you want to learn to program, you should build a video game. Let's go. Programming is art. Leaving aside the usual question, programming inarguably demonstrates some key aspects we associate with creative pursuits. One I'd like to touch on quickly is coding style. A source of endless debate among programmers, I hesitantly offer up a screenshot of my text editor. You don't need to know anything about code, just give it a visual impression. Um, it's a dark theme. It's very dense of code. The L's and the font are infuriating. So the F's, the F's are bad. I don't like this font. It's a mixture of, of serif and sans serif fonts. Mm. Highly decorative serif font. No, they're... Yeah. Oh, it's just... just, just uh, uh. At, at least the source code is not in that font. Well, the source code is in that font. Oh, is it? Get, oh, yeah, yes, there, yeah. the constant... You, you oh, see yeah. the problem no, here? I, I think it was his Vulcan code. Anyway, uh, the yeah. caption for this piece of code, mm. which um, I don't like, uh, this is from a program that draws a square. I'd like to compare that to some code in the same programming language from my good friend, Alex. It's a light theme. It's it's very readable. It's a bit too much white space, though. Um, I think this is this could be for my text editor. I, I don't think I have that much red in mine. And the, the caption for this one is, you can tell with the artistic, uh, I've agreed with one of these. Uh, the caption for this one is, this is from a program that does not draw a square, which it doesn't seem to draw a square. In both cases, uh, there's 50-ish lines of code here, and on one of them, every single line has code, and the other one, there's only like 10 actual code lines in the 50 lines of code example, 50 lines example. We see a large contrast between styles here. 
I value high information density, struggling to hold in my head what I cannot see on the screen. In order to manage and organize this writhing mess, I've configured my editor to semantically highlight code. This hijacks the, va the brain's visual processing pipeline and allows sufficiently maladjusted people like me to navigate the code the same way people can identify different ingredients in a fruit salad. Alec exists at the opposite end of the spectrum. His dominant organizational pattern is spatial. When I send Alex code to review, the first thing he does is carefully read each statement and inserts blank blanks every few lines. This process of organization gives him the information he needs about the program, similar to knowing the contents of the drawers and cabinets of your house by having each collect a related group of objects. Both Alex and I are achieving the same thing. Well, one of you draws the screen, the other one doesn't. But we using established cognitive pathways to help map code to an internal model of computation. That internal model is where I believe many people struggle. Code is not programming. Imagine for a minute an aspiring writer trying to develop her skills and eventually publish a novel. She does a lot of research, buys a typewriter with great reviews, settles down with a dictionary and a thesaurus and begins to type every single word in the English language. As she types, she looks up the words in the thesaurus and learns all relationships and colloquialisms. She studies grammatical rules in the evenings and maintains decent penmanship in case she ever needs it. What effect will this have on the quality of the writer's novel? Then there's a photograph of a typewriter um, and with the caption, I'm uncomfortable not having a picture every few paragraphs. That's, that's typically how you write an EU report too. Consider a second author who spends the same amount of time reading great works of literature and writing her own stories. Whose novel will be better? If you think the example is contrived, this is exactly how many online tutorials teach people to program. They focus on the tools of a trade to complete exclusion of the trade itself. With programming, the trade is computation, and a consistent internal model of computation is necessary to build non-trivial programs. Newcomers to programming frequently ask questions about how to do impossible or near-impossible things. Their lack of an internal model means they don't have the ability to even put bounds on their problems. A comparison would be an apprentice carpenter asking which saw to use to bind two pieces of wood together. Programming is different. Why doesn't a carpenter need an internal model of wood? Or writers of story. Why don't we talk about artists needing an internal model of cubism? And there's a cubist picture. Picasso matched people to an internal model of cubes. What's Picasso a graphics card? Because each and every one of us already has those models, they don't need to be developed from scratch, merely refined from their amateur state. Oh, oh I've got a lot of arguments about this point. I'm going to make them though. You can, you can get that in Patreon content. The written word is a couple of millennia old, or a couple of millennia older than that. The jury is out on what came first, grammatical language or storytelling? Probably storytelling. Physics has as a, a basis in human experience, so does maths, chemistry, biology, and most other scientific fields, which is to say you already understand these things at some extremely basic level, at least along with everyone else for all of recorded history. A student of art might find the style and taste of a layman to be bad or simple, but the layman still has tastes. A newcomer to computer programming lacks even those foundational elements, because to have taste, they would have to know what the hell it is they're looking at. How to learn programming. Despite all the whinging, I don't believe learning to program is any sort of Herculean feat. I just wouldn't advise ever reading a programming textbook cover to cover. The goal of a beginning programmer should always be to development of practical, useful programs. These programs will really accomplish what they were originally planned to do, but in the process of failing, beginners will place a cornerstone of intuition necessary to succeed. A carpentry apprentice doesn't aimlessly cut wood. He purposely attempts to build furniture and in the process and, and learns in the process of failure. My only piece of practical advice in this entire post is that video games are great pieces of software to fail at building. 
because they cover a wide swath of programming challenges and you get to have some fun on the way. Every question must be relentlessly pursued to the ground. Assumptions should be constantly challenged. Students should never students should never accept because that's the way it is. The most they should allow is we'll get to it later. Reason being, false foundations lead to those impossible questions and inability to frame problems in their solution space. Professional programmers don't do this, of course, so they happily accept black boxes the same way soccer moms accept that their vans go broom when they push the accelerator. <laughs> the difference is a professional programmer has already developed her intuition. She already has a consistent internal model of computation and therefore can make reasonable guesses about how any given black box works. Just like we can make reasonable guesses broadly about the accelerator in a van works. When a beginner finds she's naturally making those kinds of abstracts about how computing works, she's no longer a complete beginner and can probably call herself a rank amateur. This whole piece is kind of crap. If you read this far, I want to know that I recognize that. I vaguely point out that new programmers have a hard time make a gonzo claim about why and offer two and a half paragraphs of a solution. The point I was trying to get across was simply this. Learn how computers work before trying to master a programming language. The best way to learn how computers work is to write a lot of code and ask a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Be relentless in your pursuit of answers. Everything else is sh- or product placement. Yeah, so we at the uh, university also discussed this, you know, why other students are getting worse and worse every year. Is it just our perception or is also the material getting more and more difficult? Like, remember when I was studying or I mean, I remember we didn't have uh, Docker uh, and uh, Ansible or uh, Kubernetes and all these complex technology that the students nowadays kind of have to grow up with or learn. Uh, our world was a bit simpler in that regard. And don't get me started on AI stuff. And having to learn all this is as a kind of an expectation that's kind of hard nowadays what so, no i'm sorry but docker is much easier to set up than apache yeah. tomcat right oh yeah in like, that regard yes they they were the things that were the hardest things to set up when i was studying was you were given so this you think they balance out stack yeah i think okay so we talked on the end of the last show about the awk programming language book the second edition came out this week um the first edition was written in 1980 I think it came out in 1988. So it was being written in 1987. I think that's a safe argument. Hmm. This is a very simple to approach programming language that makes things very powerful, like a lot of Unix tools. That's why we have a Unix podcast and it's taken up all of our lives. <coughs> but installing for BSD, very difficult. You had to figure out a way to boot this and then you had to recompile it to get rid of all the extra drivers. So you only had the system you had. And it was so complex and on such an expensive piece of machinery that the only people that did it were a select set of sysadmins. And it created this free software uh, Unix movement, which has Linux and FreeBSD and Oh, of course, yeah. Because people wanted to run this on their own computers, but it was very hard. Good point. And now it's very easy to install an operating system. But it's very hard. It's still hard. uh, Just hard in a different way. It it has a certain uh, different points. I guess a lot of things... uh, go into this why students are that weak or perceived that weak. There's also good students by all means. Um, is it also the abstractions, like too many layers that they have to dig through to to get to the actual source? But, we're not but that we're close to the at, hardware anymore. so many abstractions. And like, you come back to awk, right? The abstractions are meaningless because it's 
a tiny programming language and all it does is it deals with rows of data and rows of data yeah. are separated by a new line and that's it that's the end like that's that's all it will really process that's all yeah hmm. um you don't need to know what the abstractions are you might need you to know that you tool. can't run awk on a jpeg you can't you, yeah you, you, or, you, you actually like or, or dark, yeah. of course you can but hmm. you might learn that it's the wrong thing for this um hmm. Docker is complex because Docker is complex. It's just poorly architected. By itself, like, yeah. Today, I, <laughs> I was trying to figure out the temperature of my CPU in Linux, and <clears throat> I ended up reading the source code for both LM sensors and then K10, K10 temperature kernel driver to figure out where in sys slash cast the class the temperature file was. <clears throat> now, this is a very old driver, this isn't new. This hasn't gotten more complicated over time. Not well maintained. It's just not documented and it's not sensible. And none of the tooling wants to be documented. And it has hit the same thing with ETH tool where I've been using Linux today, it's upset me. But like mm. I hit the thing with ETH tool where the term the, the command line flags Rx and Tx mean different things in different contexts based on preceding flags. That's mm. Poorly designed interface. I'm not saying FreeBSD's IF config is any better. It is a nightmare to read that man page too. But yeah. the students are struggling with the new technology because it's not well documented and well designed. It's just the stuff that won. And that may also be I struggled true, yeah. to set up Tomcat and whatever awful JPM, JVM stuff because it wasn't well designed and well put together. And when I started my career, I had arguments about, well, this is a terrible technology stack and it's locking you into awful things. And people were like, hmm. but it's what we have to use. So it's just, it, yeah, the cool stuff's just stuck behind poor limitations. It doesn't mean it's harder because it was definitely harder in 1975 to run a PC than it is today. Oh, yes, that's for sure. So it's and not also that the technology is getting harder. It's just that the literacy levels are different. Hmm. Okay, so the jury is still out. We haven't found a solution yet anyway, but we just see the phenomenon and wonder, is it us or what should we change to help the students? Because we in the academia want to kind of, you know, grow up the next uh, computer science generations. And uh, yeah, we wonder what we can do different. Um, I was mentioning Docker earlier, so uh, that kind of ties up into the news roundup this week. FreeBSD jails versus Docker, a comparison on the justanerds.site. Very nice URLs we have recently. Um, starting off with the first item there, maturity and longevity. And they, for FreeBSD, they say, FreeBSD jails have been in existence since 2000, making them one of the oldest containerized technologies. And jails have evolved and have matured over the years, benefiting from extensive testing, improvements, and contributions from the FreeBSD community. Docker containers. Docker, while popular, is a relatively newer technology, having gained prominence around 2013. Docker containers have gone through rapid development, which has resulted in several changes and updates over time. So number uh, or the second point is security. FreeBSD jails, uh, they are designed with security in mind. They are native operating. They are native operating system level virtualization to provide strong isolation between applications. Each jail has its independent file system, processes, users, and IP address, reducing the attack surface and minimizing security risks. Jails are built on the solid foundation of FreeBSD security features, including mandatory access control policies, security enhanced options like SE Linux, and more. Docker containers, on the other hand, Docker containers run a user space process 
on the host operating system. This can lead to certain security challenges as containers share the host kernel. While Docker has introduced security features like user namespaces and app armor as SE Linux profiles, achieving strong isolation requires careful config and monitoring. Docker also involves running additional daemons and components that can be potential security targets. They also list security efficiency as point three, previously jails. Jails have lower resource overhead because they share the same kernel with the host system. This makes them efficient for running multiple containers on a single host. Docker containers. Docker have a slightly higher resource overhead due to the Docker daemon and the need to run a lightweight OS layer, the container image, with each container. And Docker's approach might be less efficient when running numerous containers on a single host. Uh, in the use case and compatibility area, FreeBSD jails are well suited for running applications in FreeBSD environments and they provide native FreeBSD compatibility. They are excellent for isolating and managing native FreeBSD applications and services. Docker containers, on the other hand, Docker has broad cross-platform compatibility, allowing you to run containers on various operating systems. It's a more versatile option for multi-platform deployments. Docker containers can encapsulate a wide range of applications and technologies beyond FreeBSD. Uh, last here, they list is community and ecosystem, FreeBSD jails. They are deeply integrated into the FreeBSD operating system and benefit from the extensive FreeBSD community and ecosystem. Documentation support and security updates are readily available through the FreeBSD project. In Docker space, Docker boasts a large and active community and it has a rich ecosystem of containerized applications, images, and orchestration tools. However, Docker's rapid evolution, they say, has led to compatibility issues between different versions and tools. So both FreeBSD jails and Docker containers have their strengths and are suitable for different use cases. FreeBSD jails are more mature, secure, and designed for specific scenarios where strong isolation compatibility with FreeBSD and resource efficiency are paramount. Docker, on the other hand, excels in cross-platform compatibility and broad ecosystem support, making it a popular choice for diverse application deployments. The choice between them depends on the specific requirements of your project and your familiarity with each technology. Yeah, that's important. I think if you only have a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Or if you only have a nail, then everything looks like a hammer. Whatever. You know what I mean. Cool. Next, Dr. Brian Robert Callahan is back. And this time he's installing Oracle Developer Suite 12.6 on a Lumos. Or an exercise in lies, more lies, and lying back. <laughs> in maintaining OKSH, which is the OpenBSD K shell, but portable, I want to ensure that as many C compilers and operating systems can successfully build and run the shell. It doesn't necessarily need to be perfect, but it does need to be good enough that a user can get an improved experience compared to what came pre-installed. Even if they go on to use OKSH to install GNU Bash, that's fine. It's a win for OKSH. Hopefully they will remember the help they got from some OpenBSD code and pay it back someday. As a result, I've had the pleasure of using some cool C compilers. For a long time now, OKSH has supported Oracle Solaris, Solaris and Illumos, the open source continuation of Open Solaris. From the beginning of OKSH support for the Solaris family, we have supported building with both GCC and Oracle Developer Studio, formerly known by many names, including Oracle Solaris Studio, Sun Studio, Sun Workshop, Forte Developer, Sun Pro Compilers. However, support for Oracle Developer Studio rested on others who are running Oracle Solaris. I wanted to change that and get Oracle Developer Studio running on one of my own machines. That is going to mean using one of the Illumos distros, so I'm not about to pay Oracle to use Solaris. I chose Open Indiana because it is the first Illumos-based distro I think of, and because it is actively well-maintained. 
I, if I'm going to invest my time learning Solaris, I would like to be in for the long haul. I want to learn one of the Illumos distros and stick with it. While I'm sure other Illumos distros were also well-maintained, I did not spend much time deciding. I knew Open and Indiana existed, and I chose it. With that said, I believe these steps will work well on all 64-bit x86 Illumos distros. Join me on my quest to install Oracle Developer Studio 12.6 on Illumos, despite Oracle's best attempts to stop me. Installing Open Indiana, this is very easy. I'm using VirtualBox on my Windows 11 laptop, as I heard VirtualBox is the best support for the Solaris family. This makes sense to me as Oracle owns VirtualBox as well. I downloaded the Open Indiana Live DVD and walked through the installation process with VirtualBox. It was very easy to install, nothing to report here. If you're going to have to do a GUI install, this is the best way to do it. The latest version of Developer Studio is 12.6. You can download it for free on Oracle's website, but you have to sign up for an account with them to do so. Fortunately, Oracle's account creation scripts don't check to see if you're using a throwaway email service. So I did that to get an account. There are three options when downloading Solaris, uh, downloading Solaris 11, Solaris 10, and Linux. Linux is out since we're running a Lumos. The question is to use Solaris 11 package or the Solaris 10 package. The Illumos FAQ states that Illumos should run binaries and probably even kernel drivers from Solaris 10 update 10 and earlier, reflecting our strong commitment to backwards compatibility and interface stability. More recent versions of Solaris, especially after Solaris 11, are not considered compatible, even if they sometimes seem to be. Oracle developed Solaris 11 as a proprietary fork of OpenSolaris and has been diverging from Illumos for nearly a decade at this point. However, because I can't help myself, I decided to attempt to install the Solaris 11 package first, following Oracle's steps to get the package repositories ready for installation, just fail on a Lumos. I'm not sure why, and it was not worth looking into. The Lumos people say Lumos will run Solaris 10 binaries, and Oracle offers a Solaris 10 package of developer Studio 12.6, so let's go with that instead. It's also far simpler to download this Solaris 10 package, as that's simply a tarwell offered via direct download. The Solaris 11 package requires the use of their complicated package manager. Now equipped with the Solaris 10 Tarball Developer Studio 12.6, I need to figure out how to install it. Let's install attempt one. After extracting the Tarball, there's a helpful developerstudio.sh script right in the top level directory that looks like it will do the installation work for us. Let's run it and see what happens. It does not take long for the script to error out, informing us that we are running Solaris 11. And this is a package for Solaris 10. Fair enough. I suppose, but let's not let something as small as that stop us. If we run uname-r, we get sonos 5.11 as the output. So we're running Solaris 11. Illumos is technically Solaris 11. Um, even if Oracle Solaris 11 and Illumos have over a decade of divergence at this point. Reading through the developerstudio.sh script, it looks like looking at the output of uname to determine what version of Solaris we are running. More specifically, the script uses uname, uname-a, and uname-r to learn about the system. Lying. Since the source code for Lumos uname is written in C and we don't have a C compiler on our system, we can't just edit the source code. Yes, I know I could just install GCC from the package manager, but that's cheating, and we can still do this without it. We need to lie to the installation script and convince that we're running Solaris 10. I did try editing the script, but if you do that, it will claim it has been corrupted and refuse to do much of anything. We need a program that does this. Uh, it's a fake uname. Um, the there is some kind of identifying hash, probably the git hash. In this program, I've changed the instances of 5.11 to 5.10. Now let's write that program. Since we don't have a C compiler or any high-level language compiler, it seems we might have to rely on assembly. 
I guess we have Java in the form of OpenJDK, but I'm not writing any Java. Finding an assembler. I guess we need to check if OpenIndiana ships with an assembler. It does not appear to. OpenIndiana does ship with a linker, and indeed you can see the source code of the, the source code of the linker driver and the linker library in the Illumos gate repository, which means that Sun at some point got around to open sourcing the Solaris linker. That's good. Linking binaries and libraries is important. However, the same appears not to be true of the Sun assembler. We might have to resort to installing GNU binning tools to get an assembler. If we did that, we might as well install GCC. More lies and assembler hiding in plain sight. In the developer studio, 12.6 Tarwell is a directory called Patches. That directory contains headers and libraries that might not be installed on all Solaris 10 machines, but are necessary for developer studio to function. Inside the first patch subdirectory, descriptively named at 119966-16, there are more subdirectories. If we follow them down through sun wsprot slash relog slash user ccs slash bin, we find a binary named as that looks like an assembler. Indeed, running as-v shows as studio 12.5 compiler, common 12.5, blah, 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 blah. We have an assembler after all. As we will see later, this strikes me as a little odd, as the actual developer studio package ships with a different updated assembler to be used with the compiler. Why didn't they just provide a copy of that updated assembler here is a mystery to me, but it's fine. The assembler will work to our needs. I copied the assembler to user CCS bin AS and made a symlink. Lying again. The Sun assembler can handle either 32-bit x86 or 64x86. It defaults to 32-bit, but if you use the dash M64 flag when assembling, that tells it you're working with 64-bit assembly. I chose 64-bit assembly because my 64-bit assembly is far better than my 32-bit assembly. Here's a program I came up with. You can download it here, and I'm reproducing it below. It's an assembly program that fakes the uname C program that I didn't read out above because it's a podcast and not a text-to-speech robot. We're straight up lying. Since we know the installation script only uses uname, uname-a, and uname-r, we can just check the number of arguments given to the program. If it's one, then the script issue uname. If it's two, then we have to check one of the flags, check if it's A, and if not go down the R route without doing any additional checking because we don't care. We're just here to lie and get out of the way as quickly as possible. I needed to find an Illumos syscall table, and it turns out the two syscalls we need, exit two and write two, have the same syscall numbers as OpenBSD. This makes things very simple. I was able to run as-m blah, blah, blah to assemble the code and then link it. The result was a working lying uname on OpenIndiana. On OpenIndiana, uname lives in slash sbin, so I ran sudo move sbin uname uname2, sudo move uname uname less sbin to install a lying. Attempt 2. Now we can convince the installation script of Solaris 10, let's try to install again. We do get further, but we don't get much further. It turns out the installation wizard is written in Java, and only Oracle Java will do. Since we have the OpenJDK on the machine, the installation script errors out. Fortunately, you can download a package of Java 8 for Solaris. You don't need to install this version of Java. It's just enough to extract it somewhere in your home directory and use dash dash Java home flag with the installation script to point to it. Easy enough. Unfortunately, this version of Java won't run as is. Our system is missing some support libraries that Java needs to run. More lies. The developer studio tarball includes install patches.sh script to install the patches you need to install developer studio. However, the script calls utilities that our system doesn't have. I'm not going to bother trying to find them. I'm going to write a shell script to install the patches. You can download the script here as their lying uname. I'll reproduce it here so you can read it. It's long. 
It's a long article and description, I guess. Nearly there. Uh, Let's install attempt three. Now Java 8 <laughs> should work. I also had to make a new directory named temp for temporary files. Running pseudo developer studio tempter Java home created me with an installation wizard. The wizard is very upset and warned me that I'm not running an official Oracle Solaris and I might be missing some packages needed for runtime. Those are both problems I either know and don't care about or problems I can deal with later. I left all the default options and kept pressing next until the installation began. The installation completed without any issues. Even more lies, runtime edition. At this point, I needed our, I no longer needed a line uname utility, so I deleted it and put the original back. Turns out you can't compile all that much since Open Indiana does not install system headers by default. I know Linux does this too, but I'm sorely spoiled by the BSD mentality of a default install should include everything. <sighs> the Solaris family uses a complicated package manager called the Image Packaging System, or IPS for short. Why didn't they make a joke out of that? I'm sure that once you know how to get to it and, and understand its quirks, it's perfectly serviceable. However, after more than a decade of the OpenBSD package manager, it's difficult to get my brain to think the way other package managers want me to think. I first tried to install the system headers using sudo package install header, since the package browser says that's what the package is called, but it kept failing, telling me I needed something about being blocked by a consolidation slash OSNet slash OSNet incorporation package. Eventually figured out I needed to run sudo package install consolidation OS net OS net incorporation. If I understand correctly, this is how you update the system. <laughs> and the system needed to be updated before it let me install any other packages. Package manager is a little slow, so you need to wait a little while for updates to complete. I could now successfully compile and assemble code, but I could not link. The linker was complaining I could not find uh, a library. Eventually discovered this file is necessary for C99 support. After searching around the package repository, I discovered the file was part of the C runtime package, so I installed that. Finally, I could compile, assemble, and link C programs. I finally had Oracle Developer Studio 12.6 running on Open Indiana. Interestingly, the installation includes a slash opt Developer Studio 12.6 bin Sun AS that identifies itself as uh, the updated linker. As far as I can tell, this is the uh, sorry, updated assembler. As far as I can tell, this is the assembler that is used in the compiler pipeline. While Oracle includes an older version of the patches, it still remains a mystery. While there may be gaps hidden in support that require additional work, I can confidently say that I'm able to install and run Oracle Developer Studio 12.6 on an Illumos machine, despite Oracle's best efforts to prevent me from doing so. Thanks, Brian. It was a very long blog post. Why didn't mm -hmm. you write a shell script rather than writing an assembly <laughs> program? <laughs> Why, That's why? what people do. <laughs> I know it's a fun <laughs> distraction, but why didn't you write a shell script? Yeah, well. You only had to print three things. Details, details. BSD now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud. You can be sure that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what is duplicated and then assembles the data into compressed blocks and creates them with your local private key. And this key never leaves your system. The data is then uploaded into the cloud. Even if someone is able to obtain your data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code and make sure it does what we say it does. And Tarsnap has bug bounties so that if you find errors in the code, you can get paid for helping make the software better. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse not to have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. 
Okay, uh, let's jump a little bit ahead into the feedback and questions right away because we're getting short on time and we want to cover feedback and questions this time. Uh, Brad is the first one with a detective work on Zetpool history story or feedback. And that goes, uh, hi gents, I'm working a bit on a mystery. I'm running ZFS tools to do cascading snapshots of all my physical boxes as recommended. I snapshot every 15 minutes and keep forward and keep 24 hourlies, seven dailies, four weeklies, and 12 monthlies using the cleanup script to keep everything clean. A couple of weeks ago, I was looking through my snapshots on my desktop machine running 13.2 release, and I noticed that some event happened on the 7th of April, 2023. Uh, what's the hour here? 16, 52, and 31 seconds. And all of my monthly snapshots on that machine were destroyed for all data sets. Unfortunately, at the point where I found it, warlock messages only went back to 2020, uh, the 26th of uh, April, and warlock cron only went back to the 25th of oh, May even. I went back and searched for anything in or roots command line history, either from that time or during a ZFS destroy, and found nothing. My first instinct was to write an Ansible playbook to actually write the Zeppel history, a lovely command that I just learned about while investigating this anomaly, to somewhere in slash var or later analysis, but since it's stored permanently and appended to right within the pool, that seemed kind of pointless. So I have two questions. Is there a way to tell what caused almost a year of monthly backups to be deleted? What would be the most straightforward way, since I already didn't know about Zeppel history, to detect, alert, or prevent something like this happening again? I guess I could write a script to check our anonymous uh, destroys and then set up a cron job to run it on a regular basis through Ansible or equivalent, but that seems a bit unwieldy. Thanks, guys. Oh, yeah. So that is weird. At that particular time, that doesn't seem all too out of the ordinary, like, uh, you know, daylight savings change or something. That's just regular, well, April as it goes. Uh, maybe it's a bug in the ZFS tool script. So I recently switched uh, to the uh, Zanoid Syncoid script for my backups. Um, I think those are a bit more configurable anyway, and it doesn't need too much of uh, extra software to be added. Uh, but I can't vouch if that also may happen there. So that's certainly a mystery. Um, what the ZPool history is involved with, you could definitely dump it every hour as a separate cron job into a little log that you keep around. Since the history gets overwritten after a while with newer entries and the old one gets uh, rotated uh, back into the void. Uh, so good question. If anyone else is out there that may have a solution or encountered the same thing at exactly that point in time, then let us know. We'll be happy to uh, uncover this mystery. All right. And the next question we have comes from... I know we don't have a name. X to work? Might be a name. Could be, yeah. Yeah, X to work. Hi, I've just read this article which raised some interesting questions. Um, cold restart total outage. I pretty like the part cold starts with empty caches cause too much load in the database and then the failure cascades. It would be nice to hear your practical experiences regarding this or similar topics. Considering BSDs are fully operating systems, Codebase contains every key part. They could be useful in a civilization disaster recovery. Also, there are non-BSD operating systems meant for post-apocalypse situations like Collapse OS and Dusk OS. Uh, yep, there sure are. So I have recently discovered, that's a bit of a ten tangent here, but on 
um, what's it called? Uh, no Starch Press. Uh, there is a book called Practical Doomsday. That's not just about uh, you know computing doomsdays, but also you know how to prepare a little bit. It's not the whole prepping thing, but also like considering a couple of scenarios that could happen, and like financial or other things around uh, where you live and stuff. So that's certainly an interesting book to look at. But going back to your question. Um, I covered this a couple of times or I tell this to students. Yeah, remember, you can just hit reset if something goes wrong in the system and you just have a fresh system boot up again because the memory is empty. If we have something like uh, persistent memory in the future that doesn't get cleaned when you recycle or reboot the system, then you may have some old pointers hanging around that you could potentially reuse. And I think the ZFS folks are working on this kind of thing to recover parts of the arc uh, quicker after a reboot, if some dangling pointers are still in the uh, main memory. That is maybe something that is warming up the caches quicker. Uh, in terms of databases, um, good question. I mean, sometimes it's better to start fresh anyway and load the new data that the users are currently uh, requesting from the database. And ideally, your restarts doesn't happen too often so that this uh, cache doesn't get empty too often. But yeah, there are strategies, of course, to quickly or faster uh, fill your caches again after uh, they have been emptied. Interesting choice of uh, of question here. Uh, anything from you, Tom? Uh, I mean, this is quite a common problem in power domains where mm. yeah. the load on the system can make it impossible to bring the system back up. But yeah, I think for, for databases and, and caches, you need gradual restart and it can be quite hard but it needs to be a thing you plan into the system and not something you encounter once it crashes yeah there's also many different uh, uh, caches available in the system anyway not just the operating system but also the databases you mentioned and cpu caches and all these little things to like the question is which caches are you warming up uh, earlier than others yeah or in which part of this hierarchy of io are you working uh, so yeah it's an interesting question and also, like measuring, is this actually beneficial to preload them? Is it actually giving you a benefit? Or is it just trying to make something better that actually doesn't get better this way? Yeah, if anyone else has a comment about that, has some practical experiences, something like this, or has built some kind of system like that, it would be interesting to hear about that. Send that to feedback at bstnauto.tv, and we'll be happy to revisit that in a future episode. Okay. Thanks for writing in. Then we have Mike. And then the last question we have this week comes from Mike on the principle of least astonishment. A benefit of FreeBSD and BSD in general is Polar, the principle of least astonishment. This is nice, but could it come back to bite us? Things change. Are we resisting the inevitable and hurting adoption, or are we just being responsible? Where's the compromise? Here's a link to my Mastodon post where I asked this question. There isn't a ton of extra content there, but it did lead to a good article from Celine. Uh, yeah. It's it's the the shackles that hold us back from progress. Mm. Um, no matter what you want to do inside FreeBSD, you can always be someone can always try and shoot you down by bringing up Polar, and it makes it difficult to push things through. Um, this is one of the things that held back package base, and it can hold back other changes. But in the end, people barrel through and they just ignore this, and that's how we we get through change. But it's good. It's a good under. It's a good core principle, but it shouldn't be the thing that stops you from doing stuff. Yeah, it shouldn't be weaponized and uh, like, oh, we should never change anything at all, or let's stay in the good old days. Sometimes we had 
in the projects we had made these polar decisions or violations sometimes by accident without not thinking about it too much um, but it's definitely a guiding principle as far as I'm concerned looking into the project's history and FreeBSD that is I guess other BSDs have similar policies um, and it looking at the BSDs that they don't change that quickly with every new release everything's new you have new commands that you have to learn that is also why I think the BSDs are more popular than other systems that change with like just for the sake of change and this principle is probably one uh, reason why that is so uh, it's and it also requires a lot of you know a boilerplate writing and compatibility into the backup stuff or backward stuff if you develop something new you also want to make sure that the old stuff still works that the data still is transferred back and forth and that needs a lot of extra code being written and sometimes i think we don't appreciate that much how much engineering goes into make the old world still work in the new world just as it is hard to tell if it's a, it also has its drawbacks by all means and uh, we shouldn't uh, ignore those of course but I think from my standpoint, it's good to have the user not be too surprised and kind of leading gradually into the new system, the new feature, whatever it is, and not completely surprise them. Of course, documentation still needs to be there, release notes, and hey, this is new, this is a breaking change, this is something you should be aware of when you do the step into the next version. Um, so that is not completely done away with but hey it certainly has helped the project uh, stay viable maintainable as well that's also the question about maintainability and of course at one point we just say yeah the boilerplate and the system is now so old it has been around for so long but no one is actually using it and has not been for years let's just cut it and we have a bit of a, a smaller uh, footprint to maintain is that something uh, people can resonate with or have others, other ideas about? Uh, let us know. We'll be happy to discuss this in the future. We may have other uh, ideas that we haven't thought about. So definitely reach out if you have something. Yeah. Uh, and if you have we didn't. questions, comments, feedback, follow-up, you can get us at feedback at bsdnow.tv. Um, and if you would like to join our very quiet Telegram channel, you can go to t.me slash bsdnow and speak to the oh it's nearly 100 people 100 ish oh, people it's, there. Yes, it's quite big no one speaks it's perfect exactly what you want from a group uh -huh. <laughs> there's also uh our well little presence on twitch x uh, twix whatever it's called these days uh, where we announce new episodes when they come out and we also have a patreon account if you want to give us a bit of money for you know supporting the show in one way or the other that would be certainly appreciated that's uh uh, patreon.com slash bsd now uh, i think we're through with the episode quite nice quite diverse different uh, ideas in there as always and if you can wait another week we will definitely have another episode there and then waiting for you <laughs>